You may not know this about Pastor Solo, but Pastor Solo has been a competitive runner. And one of the races he ran in competitively was the 4x400, the relay race, as he was in intense training. And so I talked with him, and he went out and got me this baton, which is an actual baton that you use in the relay races. And this is an image that I want to keep locked in as we're in this series of messages. It's the idea of the passing of the baton during the relay race and how crucial it is that this takes place without a hitch, without a fumble, without a mishandle, without a drop, and how seriously it can affect the team for good or for not so good if the baton is not passed properly. And this image we're using in application of how the generations relate to one another, specifically Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the things that they passed on generationally to one another. And we're asking this question, and we're trying to keep it in the forefront of our minds as we go through this series, what are you passing on? Because you're passing things on. What are you passing on? And today, we continue the story, and we want to focus in on this idea of actively waiting. Actively waiting. The story began a few weeks ago, and in Genesis 12, where God says, I've got this incredible mission for you, Abraham, this grand adventure and Abraham, in, in just like almost an unprecedented act of faith, says, I'm in God. And he starts on the mission and God says, go to this place where I'm going to send you. And off Abraham goes with his whole family and everybody that works with him. And as he's going, God says, listen, I have a promise for you. The promise is, here you are at age 75 and your wife, Sarai is 65 years of age, you have no children, and you're past the age of Sarah, Sarai being able to have children, and yet I am going to produce from you, from the two of you, a line of descendants that will be incredibly numerous, and the world will be changed because of this, and the world will in fact be blessed right to this day, and we are blessed to this day as a result of that. A couple of times as they're going forward, God says, I want to remind you of the promise, and he amplifies it in the chapters that are coming after chapter 12. And then time begins to slip by as they're waiting for the fulfillment of this prophet, uh, this promise. And in fact, 10 years goes by. And now Abram, who later becomes Abraham, is 85 years of age. And Sarai, who becomes Sarah later, is 75 years of age and still no offspring, still no baby. If you have your device, if you have your Bible, your hard copy of the Bible, turn on the device or in your Bible to Genesis chapter 16. First book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 16, as we continue learning 
the generational lessons that are being passed along. Chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Again, 10 years have gone by, no children. But she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. And when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. So back then, and certainly in some parts of the world even to this day, but especially back then, it was viewed as an appropriate thing to do. It wasn't a good thing to do. It was an accepted thing to do, but not a good thing to do, where a servant was viewed as a type of surrogate. Um, This was typically done by the people that were wealthy and were rich. And so she comes and she says, I have an alternate solution to the promise that God has given to the two of us. And she says, why don't you take Hagar, like some of the other rich folks in that day would do, and have a child through her, and I will like raise him. This kid will be part of our line. Why did Abram agree to this? Why did she propose this? Because they both knew this was not God's plan. And I want you to notice, and we're going to begin to see in one of the admittedly heroes of the faith, Abraham. The scripture calls him a hero of the faith. We begin to see in this guy a passivity when it comes to life. When he's faced with difficult choices, he reverts to a passive mode in life. And basically he acquiesces and he goes along with Sarai. And this passivity is something we're going to begin to notice in an ongoing payment way several times as we study his life. And I will say this, every time he is passive and just goes along to get along, what happens is the storm clouds begin to gather. And this is exactly what's going to take place in our story today. Be careful what you're passing on to the next generation. I don't believe God ever wants us to be passive. He wants us to be active. And we can be active when seemingly doing nothing. Active waiting. What does God say about their plan? What does he say about this alternate plan they've come up with? Well, first of all, as you've often heard me say, and I'm going to say again today, singleness is from God. We see this talked about in 1 Corinthians 7. It's every bit as normal in the economy of God as marriage is. Single people are equally blessed, equally loved, equally cared for, and equally useful by God because every one of us is called to be used. Every follower of Jesus has a call on their life that we need to discover that God will show us and God will ask us to step into. And equally useful Uh, is the single person by God. And of course, this is aptly 
illustrated in the life of Jesus. And so you are in good company if that's where you are at this moment in life. In Genesis chapter 2, then, we see that uh, monogamous heterosexual marriage covenant relationship is an expression as well of the will of God. One man, unlike what we're hearing so often now, one man and one woman who are together in heterosexual, monogamous, covenant relationship, marriage. And he created this, and as he's doing the creation, he's saying, good, 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 creates husband and wife, one man, one woman, and says, very good. This is the will of God. And then Jesus affirms this in Matthew chapter 19, and so we see it affirmed in the New Testament, and this has not changed no matter what we might hear to the contrary. In Proverbs chapter 5, we're told to be happy with the wife, singular, of our youth. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're told that an elder slash a leader is to be the husband of one wife. And yet, having said all that, if you know the Old Testament in particular, you know there's a number of times where some men would have more than one wife. And in fact, some of them had, had a lot of wives. Now, having said that, if you read all those stories, and I've read them all, you read all those stories, there isn't one time in Scripture where this turned out well, where someone decided to adopt what I would call an alternate plan to God's plan. I can't read one time in one of these stories where this was a positive. On the other hand, if you read these stories, carefully, what comes as a result of polygamy was people turning their back on God. It led to the overthrow of the nation of Israel. It led to evil. It led to heartache. It led to abuse. It led to jealousy. It led to inappropriate competition. competition. And each time you see it viewed in scripture, it's not good. And let's just be honest. Let's live in the real world for a moment, okay? Anybody that's married, anybody that married is, knows this. How would it work if you had more than one spouse? My advice would be that you make sure you have lots of bandages on hand. So let's see what happens when they decide to go with plan B, which is not the plan of God. Verse 4. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I love how we love. We love to shift the blame, don't we? You are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. So Abram thinks about this and he says, you know what? Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. And so Hagar gets pregnant. And if you know anything about the culture of that day, uh, to a, an even more of an extent than perhaps we would experience here, um, being pregnant was a big, big, big deal back then. And they would look at people incorrectly and assume 
if you don't have, if you're not pregnant or don't have a child, that there's something wrong with you. And they would do this incorrectly, and they would assume to a certain extent, to one degree or another, that the blessing of God had been removed from you. Again, incorrectly, but this is what they thought. And so Hagar gets pregnant, and she begins to strut a bit. And when she knows that Sarah is in hearing distance, she begins to talk loudly about the joys of being pregnant. And she begins to get in Sarah's face a little bit, and she no longer shows her the kind of respect that she had before. And surprise, surprise, they start to get into it. And so Sarah doesn't like what's happening, and she goes to Abram for support, and here are the two of them in the middle of the storm of their own choosing. And what is Abram's answer? I think I will be passive again. Rather than sitting the two ladies down and saying, let's have a discussion, let's figure this out, let's come up with some healthy boundaries, let's work through this. Instead of that, Abram says, I am just going to look for the remote and watch a little more TV tonight. Go ahead and do whatever you want with her, whatever you think is best. And he washes his hands of the situation. And so Sarai mistreats her so much that Hagar has to run for safety. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now with child and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. And so Ishmael becomes the father of of some of the nations of many of the people of today's Middle East. Isaac, who is later born to Sarai, is the line from which the Jewish people come. Have you ever noticed, if you watch the news at all, that there's a little bit of conflict in the Middle East between the different people groups? And some of that conflict, and I know there's been many other things down the line, but this conflict gets its roots in this hostility created through the passivity of Abram and through the activity of these women. And this hostility remains to this day between the Palestinians to the Arabs, the Arabs to the Jews, the Jews to the Palestinians, the Palestinians to the Jews, and the Palestinians to the Arabs. Did I cover them all? There's this little stuff going on there. In fulfillment of this text, he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. This is where the root of this stuff comes from, and it continues to this day. And they foster it 
actively, all the parties involved. So Hagar gave the name to the Lord who spoke to her in verse 13. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Abram, sorry, so Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. So Hagar returns, has the son, and for the next 13 years, Hagar and Ishmael are there with Sarah. I can imagine that that was just a barrel of laughs those next 13 years, especially when Isaac was born. When that happens, you can read in the story later, and we will, Sarai pushes Abraham to get rid of Hagar and Abram's son Ishmael and dispose of them and send them packing. This is what happened. This is where this hostility has its roots. And they have long memories. God intervenes to clean up their mess and their poor choices and cares for Hagar and Ishmael. Because like we were singing just a few minutes ago, God is a God who always keeps his promises, without exception. Always keeps his promises. So, how long does it take you to get impatient? Does it take you an hour? Does it take you a day? Does it take you a week to get impatient? Does it take you a month? Let me guess. I'm guessing that some of you are already impatient with me because I haven't finished the question. Do you ever get tired of waiting for God to act? You ever wonder, am I kidding myself waiting for that promise to be fulfilled? Well, Abram and Sarai have come to that place. They've had it up to here. And they have decided it's been 10 years. At that point, they were 85 and 75. It's time to jump the gun. It's time to bypass God's plan and engage in a counterfeit faith. And therefore, we read, Abram, meet Hagar. And let me just say to you, whenever we choose to take God out of the center of our life, whenever we begin to sort of just do it on our own, the storm clouds start to gather. They start to gather. And yet, I understand It is very hard to wait. Waiting demands persistence when every fiber of us wants to give up, wants to give in, wants to come up with an alternate plan from the one we know we're clearly supposed to pursue. And God says to us, I know it's hard to wait, but I want you to believe when there's no or very little evidence to suggest What I'm saying is going to happen. And we are so tempted, at least I am, to default to one of those really popular cliches we like to throw out. God helps those 
who help themselves. And someone says, well, Scott, isn't that in the Bible somewhere, you know, back in the back there, somewhere, one of those back pages in the Minor Prophets or something like that? That statement may be the most quoted verse that is not in the Bible. It's seen in other publications. Benjamin Franklin wrote about it in the 1700s, but it's not in the Bible. What is in the Bible is this. God helps those who trust him. God helps those who trust him and then begin to make appropriate choices in light of that trust. Begin to make choices that correlate with that trust and that revealed desire of God. What might God be asking us to wait for while we wait? Ben Patterson in his book, Waiting, writes, at least as important as the things we wait for is the work God wants to do in us while we wait. He wants to do some formation in our life. He wants to chip away a few things and form up some things. And so faith and character are often forged in delay. The other thing is, and our limited human capacity, we can't get our head around this, but God's concept of time is so different than ours. God is eternal. God is uncreated. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is self-existent. I would argue of the five proofs for the existence of God, this is the most strong argument for the existence of God. There is something that is self-existent. There is something that is uncreated. And the other four proofs for the existence of God point us towards God himself. There is something uncreated. We cannot conceive of this. We always think in terms of a beginning and an end. But he is eternal. And just to give us a taste of this, to to put it in front of us, he says things like this. This is just an illustration. In Psalm chapter 90, it says, For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has gone by or a watch in the night. A watch is three or four hours in length. And so really what he's saying there is he's saying, just to try and get your mind around this, all the recorded history since the time of Christ when he walked the face of the earth until what we're living in right now is like six hours to God or a day or two. If you, depending on which number you use, a watch in the night or the day, if you live to be 80 years of age, that's like 14 and a half minutes for God. That's about the amount of time I've been talking since I started. All of your life, your 80-year life to God is like that. And it's just an illustration. And so we begin to think about this. God's sense of time is radically different than ours. He created time, and yet he's apart from time, and he's over time, and yet at the same time, he is in time. How is my timing on that? We want it cheap, we want it easy, we want it comfortable, and most importantly, we typically want it microwave fast. God wants it holy, priceless, eternal, and at just the right time. God wants it holy, priceless, eternal, and at just 
the right time. So he says things like this in 2 Peter 3. He says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And there's so many stories everyone in this room could talk about when it comes to waiting. And there's been many, many times in my life where I've waited for extended periods. Let me remind you of one. During the time between when we left Calgary and came to Lethbridge, there was a period of waiting. And when we first indicated we'd been praying and fasting and and it was clear to us from God that he wanted us to move from Calgary somewhere else, and we extended our resume and God had given us this promise and he said, we want, he, I want you to trust me, he said to Debbie and I, for the next place of service. And so we did. And we, we extended our resume, and right away the problem started. Because this is the pattern we've been talking about in this series that we see over and over and over again in Scripture. There's a promise from God, then there will be problems, and then there will be provision. And it's not a linear thing, it swirls around. But as soon as we said, yes, God, as soon as we stepped forward, the problems began. We started getting calls. Would you be interested in going here? Would you be interested in going there? And each time we believed, we absolutely believed this is not where God would have us go. And so we said no early in the process. And the more times that happened, the harder it got to say no. Until finally there was a place that on the surface would have been, humanly speaking, an ideal match. They brought Debbie and I up there. We talked. They wanted us to come. Afterwards, we sat for hours. We prayed. We fasted. I remember one night not sleeping for five minutes. I was up praying all night about this. And in the morning, we absolutely knew from God This is not where he wants us to go. And I remember saying, if we don't go there, the higher-ups who've been arranging all of this will be upset. They're very godly individuals, but they're only human, and they're going to think we're too picky, that we're saying no for some trivial reason. But in our hearts, it was absolutely clear that God didn't want us to go there. I was so tempted to jump the gun. Maybe we better just take this one, or they might not ever offer something else. And I wrestled with God all night. And it was incredibly hard in the morning, because God clearly said no. It was incredibly hard to call and say no. And they were upset. They were mad at me. And... uh, It took a little while, but later there was peace between us. It would have absolutely been the wrong thing to go there because God had another place for us, and that place was here. And I won't tell you the long story. I've told you it at other points, but when I first met, it was interesting. When I first met with the leaders from this church, Debbie couldn't come for this initial meeting And when I went home, I sort of jokingly said to her, I don't pray about that one at all. There's not a chance those guys are going to call us back. 
But eventually God, in the clearest of terms, and I mean the clearest of terms, showed us this was the place to come. And it was a wonderful provision after a long period of waiting and trusting. After God gives the promise, the problems will come. By the way, if there's no problems, it's very possible you got the promise wrong. Because when God is leading us, the evil one doesn't like that, and he likes to push back. And there will be times when you are tempted to jump the gun and manufacture a false provision. Look what happened to Abram, to Sarai, to Hagar, to Ishmael, to Isaac, and to everyone after that when they jumped the gun. It was so cool, just before church, I was chatting with someone here. I was so proud of them, I prayed with them, and they were telling me the story of their life in the last few years, of the pattern of trusting God. And this is one of the younger people in our church, and now they're ready to step into the next stage of life. And there's some opportunities and they're trusting God for clear direction about which opportunity to step in. We talked about three opportunities. I don't know, maybe there's a fourth coming. But I was so proud of this young person. I'm going, this is awesome. This is a young person saying yes to Jesus. I'm willing to go and to do whatever you would call me to do. What are you passing on? Now, I said earlier that God wants us to be actively waiting. What do I mean by that? I would suggest it means to take and make the decision to make a series of commitments and decisions. And then out of those commitments comes actions that correlate and mesh together with those commitments. And so I'm going to invite you to make those kind of commitments this morning. Would you be willing to do that? And I'm going to make a series of statements, and I'm going to give you a brief moment after each statement in which you can pray a very simple prayer. Yes, God, I am willing. And you're going to see as I read these statements how as we are waiting... We are incredibly active. We're not passive. We're not just sitting back letting life hit us. We're incredibly active, and we're making decisions then that correlate with those commitments. So if you're willing to do that, I'll pause at the end of each one of these things, and you can pray and say, you know, I don't know how this is going to work, God, but I'm in. I'm willing to do it. Yes. And so here's the first one. I will humbly pray, God, open my eyes so that I can see as you see. And that's a great prayer to pray. So that's the commitment of your heart. I invite you to pray. Lord, I humbly pray, would you allow me to see as you see? Next one. Lord, with your help, I will stop being passive, and I will engage life. I'll step in. Thirdly, 
Lord, break my heart with the things that break your heart. Break my heart with the things that break your heart. See, we're getting our hearts and our lives aligned with God when we make these commitments. Next one. Lord, I understand you see time differently than I do, so I'm willing to submit to your timetable, whatever that might be. I'm willing to submit to your timetable, whatever that might be. Next. I affirm, Lord, that being a biblical believer, being a follower of Jesus, means there's no shortcuts in life. And I will not try to manipulate things and manufacture my own counterfeit faith. Lord, I sincerely offer myself, is there something you want to form in me between when you promised what you promised and when that's fulfilled? I'm willing. Shape me as you see fit. Lord, I ask for your peace as I wait. May the very peace of God come and rest on me. And then last commitment, final one. Lord, I commit that once you have indicated that it's time, I will go forward without a backward glance. Amen.